Hi everyone, it's Anna. Welcome back to the Mighty Littles podcast. I wanted to start off today's episode with just a couple of notes from me. This is our first educational episode and I have partnered up with Dr. Joanna Parga Belinke. She is an assistant professor at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia and she is also the co-host of the Pediatrics on Call American Academy of Pediatrics podcast and a neonatologist like myself. When I started Mighty Littles, I wanted this to be a place about medical storytelling and I wanted parents to start to feel comfortable and confident in their parenting in the NICU. Part of that is hearing about the stories of other families. And so we've brought a lot of those stories to you guys, and we will continue to bring those stories to our listeners. But part of that is also really learning about what is happening with your baby. And I also found a lot of nurses and nurse practitioners listening to the podcast and medical students and people who were interested in medicine who were really asking for more education. And so Dr. Parga Belinke and myself decided to bring you this kind of combined episode with the two of us talking about and debating about the science and what is typically done to treat babies in the NICU. Today's episode is specifically going to focus on respiratory distress syndrome, which is essentially surfactant deficiency, and it really would not be possible without the help of Makala. She is a medical student that is interested in neonatology who's been working with Joanna and I and really helping us create our Instagram squares in order to give you guys really good information and put together the format for which we are are going by and, and our bullet points. And so uh, both Joanna and I wanted to just say a special thank you to Megala because this podcast wouldn't be possible without her. Hopefully everybody who's listening is really going to learn a lot and enjoy this educational podcast. If this is something that you guys like, shoot me a message, let me know, and I'll make sure that we continue to put podcasts out there that you guys are really interested in. As always, if you are enjoying our podcasts, please like rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help us get this podcast out to more people and uh, allow them to hear all of this good information that you guys are are benefiting from. And with that, we will jump into our podcast today. Happy fall, everybody, and I will see you again next week. to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi everybody, it's Anna. Welcome back to the Mighty Littles podcast. I am super excited to have another neonatologist with me today. Um, she is an assistant professor at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and she is co-host of the Pediatrics on Call podcast through the American Academy of Pediatrics. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? So, Anna, thank you so much for uh, giving that little background on me. I'm Dr. Joanna Parga Belinke. Um, I'm really excited to be here today. I love podcasting, and I especially love talking about neonates and NICU babies. So this is such an honor. Thank you so much for having me on. I am just so excited to have you. We're really branching out with the Mighty Littles podcast, kind of from here on out. We started with primarily family stories, and I 
really like telling NICU stories. I think it's so important for parents to hear other people who have gone through the same thing. And I've had parents ask for more education. Today, we are specifically going to be focusing on respiratory distress syndrome in the newborn, which is one of the most common reasons that babies are admitted to the NICU, particularly preterm babies. It's also known as Highland Membrane Disease because I always think respiratory distress syndrome in the newborn, it's such a funny descriptor because respiratory distress is what puts a lot of newborns into the NICU. But this is a very specific definition. This is specifically referring to um, essentially a surfactant deficiency or an issue with how surfactant is working in the lungs. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm always driving home with my nurses that describing a baby as having respiratory distress is different than diagnosing a baby with respiratory distress syndrome. So respiratory distress just means they're working hard to breathe. But that respiratory distress can be from a number of different reasons. And so respiratory distress syndrome is the process by which there is not enough surfactant or there is not Um, functional surfactant in the lungs in order to keep the lungs open. It's a filmy, soapy, um, phospholipid material that that, that has what is needed in order to keep your lungs open so that when you breathe out, your lungs stay open and don't collapse down. And that's how I always describe surfactant, too, that it's like it's soap, (laughs) essentially. Yeah, it is. And it bubbles up and it keeps your lungs bubbled up and open, stops it from closing. Um, and, And it's interesting because a lot of times this respiratory distress syndrome is because you just don't have enough. And so where do we see it? We see it a lot in babies who are premature. So the earlier that you're born, the more likely you are to have some degree of respiratory distress syndrome. And it's kind of like you described, Anna, it's, it's, you get this baby who is in distress. They tend to be premature. They tend to be smaller. They're working really hard to breathe. So they've got nasal flaring, retractions, grunting. They might be making sounds while they're breathing too. I typically don't hear that really in my premature babies. I just see that they're in distress. And the other thing I'm looking at is we have them, you know, at this point, you know, people have recognized the baby needs to be in the NICU. So you're putting leads and monitors on the baby and um, hypoxemia or a lack of oxygen is something that I think is a real hallmark mark of this disorder as well. Right. And it's one of the ways that we kind of figure out what direction we want to go with our treatment path is based on how much oxygen they're needing. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast as well. One of the things that I will say about hearing babies breathe, I agree with you that a lot of times our preterm babies, you don't hear them making much noise. But in those bigger babies, so late preterm babies, 34 to 37 weeks that have some respiratory distress, or even term babies, particularly if they were born to moms with diabetes, that can really delay that surfactant production from happening. Those older babies, a lot of times you'll hear them grunting. And I describe it as, oh, to the parents as, oh, can you hear your baby singing? Because they kind of just make these these grunts and these noises. Uh, uh. That's, yeah. a, that's, that's a great grunt. Yes, no, that was, that was perfect. I was like, am I going to do that on the yeah. podcast? Or, and you just jumped right in there. You can, you can give us your grunt, yeah. Yeah, my grunt is like, uh, uh, uh. It's kind of like that. Um, and yeah, so, so in the bigger like. babies, you can hear that grunting. And I don't know, 
I'm not entirely sure why it is that I can hear them more muscle mass, more air volume, a little bit more ability to project through their vocal cords, a combination of all of that, possibly. Yes. And another thing that we'll do, so, you know, we're kind of suspecting this diagnosis, again, in a premature baby, especially in a term baby where mom had an IDM. Um, And if we want to try to confirm it, one thing we might do is get an X-ray, because an X-ray, what it'll show you is something that we like to call ground glass opacification or infiltrates. <laughs> and that's this idea, again, that the lung can't open up. So black on an x-ray is air. And you're not seeing a lot of air on that x-ray. You're seeing a lot of collapsed lung. And you might see air bronchograms, which is essentially the outlining kind of of the airways of the lung. And that's because of uh, inflammation in the lung. And again, because the lung is just not open. So x-ray is actually a really good tool for kind of saying clinically, this is what I think it is. And then if I look at this image, this kind of reinforces to me that this is RDS or respiratory distress syndrome. And again, that's going to that's gonna affect how I treat that respiratory distress in that baby. One of the things that's really important for us to clarify is that when we talk about a lung being collapsed, oftentimes we're talking about just the very, very little tiny end alveoli. And we don't mean that necessarily the entire lung collapsed. It's just this micro collapse, this atelectasis that gives us that white color. The lung is still inflated. It's just those smaller areas that are collapsed down. That's a really important point um, because, again, we can do things to open up those smaller airways. Um, So I can get into a little bit of a discussion about what we can do and what we think to do um, when we know that there's respiratory distress syndrome. Perfect. Um, So, you know, one thing is if we identify that this is a baby that's going to be born premature, we're already thinking about things we can do to mom to try to maybe help us have a less severe case of respiratory distress syndrome. And what am I getting at? I'm getting at antinatal steroids, which for any moms listening um, who've had a premature baby, they've probably had at least one dose of these steroids. And what steroids like to do and how I always describe them is they don't help you make more lung. So what they're going to do is help cells that are within the lung function a little bit better. So you have cells in the lung, you have cells, the type 1 pneumocytes that kind of line your lungs, you have the type 2 pneumocytes that make a surfactant. These are just some examples of some cell types. And what steroids do is when mom gets steroids, the baby inside mom, um, those the receptors and other things in the lung, these cells are going to be revved up so that they're going to be functioning better if that baby is born premature. And so that's why we really like to give steroids. We like when mom can get two doses, 24 hours apart, if possible, (laughs) and 24 hours before delivery. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but we know that those steroids are going to help with the mechanics of the lung. Right. And, And even though our goal is to get 48 hours of steroids on board, I would prefer to have any steroid on board. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's a conversation between the neonatologists and the OBGYN and the parents as to when is it going to be safer for your baby to be out than in. So in the case of uh, something like preeclampsia or high blood pressure, where mom is getting sick and the baby is not getting enough blood flow, we try really hard to stretch and, and keep baby safe until we get 48 hours out 48 hours from that first dose of steroids. But if baby doesn't look good, it's going to be safer for baby to come out with partial treatment with that beta-methasone than to stay in. For some moms with um, preterm labor or chorioamnionitis, which is an infection or an abruption where the placenta is pulling away from the uterus, those are cases where 
you really can't try to stretch the pregnancy out. And whatever dose of beta you get on board, that is fantastic. It is going to make the baby act a little bit more mature across the board. You know, you mentioned a lot of reasons why moms may go into preterm labor. And if only we knew more about this, too, because it's something we would really like to prevent. Right. Um, but um, is any sort if mom has any inflammation or infection, um, usually she's going to get treated for that. And we think that may help with the lungs as well, though, specifically for RDS, I think um, the beta methasone you mentioned, the steroids is our best treatment before baby's born. Yeah, I totally agree. And you can see that really with twins and multiples. So if you have a mom that came in and one baby was stressed either because of earlier rupture or an infection in that particular amniotic sac or placental insufficiency and poor blood flow to that baby, Mom got the same treatment, but the baby that was stressed out in utero oftentimes has less lung disease than the baby that was just kind of hanging out and had no idea that there were any problems and then was born. That's very true. Twins are always different. That's sometimes hard to explain, too, that they're going to have very different NICU courses. Um, but after baby is born, then we have other therapies that we can use to try to target treatment of respiratory distress syndrome. We're going to talk a lot about surfactant in a second, <laughs> because obviously if you do not have surfactant, we have surfactant that we can give to baby. And that has been, I think, I mean, we could talk about this, Anna, but it's been, I think, the biggest technological development in our profession ever. No, <laughs> I, I totally of, agree. When I list yeah. off like what are the main things in neonatology that really made a difference for babies? Isolettes, baby-specific ventilators, surfactant, and total body cooling. I feel like, and antenatal yeah. steroids. Like those are the big five that really make differences. And we're going to dive into surfactant today, big time. I know. I feel like I just have to mention it because we don't, we don't like say it off the bat. But we want to take we want to we want to really take a deep dive into that because I, I don't want to shortchange our other approaches to how we help the baby breathe that could help um, that sometimes we we wind up not giving the baby surfactant. We can have a debate about this, too, because, you know, there are some practices that say, you know, whatever they take a gestational age and they say anybody born under that gestational age, they need to be they need to have surfactant put into their lungs. Um, but some people say, hey why don't we watch and see what the baby does? I've always been on the, been training in places where we watch and see what the baby does. So before I jump to surfactant, what we'll generally do is put the baby on some sort of respiratory support. Um, and so what we'll attempt to do first is to do a non-invasive support where we don't have to stick an endotracheal tube in or a tube that goes into the mouth and into the trachea, deliver pressure directly to the lungs and oxygen. We'll try CPAP, nasal CPAP, or we'll try intermittent mechanical ventilation through the nose, which we call NIMVI, nasal intermittent mechanical ventilation. Um, some people call it BiPAP. So there are different terms. And what these are doing is, again, it's not just oxygen. So it's not just when you put on a nasal can, you get oxygen. This is delivering real pressure to the lung, again, to try to open it up because we're worried. We had talked all this, we had all this talk about lung collapse to try to open it up. And then I watch to see how much oxygen I also need to give. So I need to give a certain amount of pressure and I need to give a certain amount of oxygen. And that starts to inform, at least for me, whether or not I'm going to give surfactant. 
right other words for it that we use so there's nava which is where it's synchronized with the baby so as the baby starts to breathe in you're still giving um, pressure into the lung as the baby breathes in but it's not as invasive because there's no breathing tube in and then nippv which is nasal intermittent positive pressure ventilation and it's these are all just different names for essentially the same thing using pressure to help keep the lungs open in respiratory distress syndrome. And I think it's really good for parents to recognize that there is a difference between the amount of pressure your baby's receiving and the amount of oxygen your baby's receiving, because those are two different things. And the higher amount of pressure and the higher amount of oxygen, the sicker the baby's lungs are. And do you have, do do you practice with, if there's is there a gestational age cutoff where you say, okay, any baby at 23 weeks, I'm definitely going to give surfactant to? Or do you watch the babies too? Because this is something that I know differs between practices. Yeah, I think it really does differ between practices. We don't have a hard and fast gestational age cutoff um, or a weight cutoff. Some people go by weight, some people go by age. And we don't have a, a, a definitive cutoff. But I will say that if you have a nice big 34-week baby who's on a CPAP of six and 35% and whose x-ray looks like respiratory distress syndrome, we're going to watch that baby and see if the oxygen comes down and kind of over that first six hours really make a decision. But if I have that same baby who's a 25-weeker, whose x-ray looks like really bad respiratory distress syndrome, who's on CPAP and about 40% oxygen, I'm going to be more proactive about putting that breathing tube in just a little bit earlier than I, I'm less willing to watch them for as long. That's another way to say it. They're not as big. They're not going to be able to maintain their respiratory effort probably as much as a 34, 35, 36 weeker. I mean, you can see RDS really at any time, but I agree that we tend to help out the preemies a little bit earlier. And here's the thing. If I'm going to wind up intubating, I'm probably going to give surfactant um, probably like nine times out of 10. Because once I've gotten to that point where my non-invasive measures have failed and I have to stick a tube in, I'm doing it because that pressure is not effective enough non-invasively to keep the lung open. I'm having to use too much oxygen. And you mentioned some oxygen cutoffs. What I typically use is when I'm dancing at 40%. And you're right that I'll I'll watch a bigger baby. I have had cases of, I had a 35-weeker once who sat on 35% oxygen on a CPAP of seven for five days before we could really wean them down. And every day was a discussion, you know, and, and you get this surfactant discussion kind of in the first 48 hours. Are we going to intubate? Are we going to give surfactant? But it didn't, you know, the no, it, baby wasn't getting worse. They just took a long time to get better. But I'm not going to let that 25-weeker sit. And if I'm going to put the tube in, I'm probably going to give surfactant at yeah. that point. No, I totally agree. And it's always those bigger babies where after the first 24 hours when they're still on a CPAP of six and they're still on, you know, 35% oxygen that in your head you kind of go, oh, should I have given the surfactant or should I not have? And in all honesty, you guys, there's no right or wrong answer here. Simply by putting a breathing tube in, you are, that is a procedure. You can introduce bacteria down there. It can be traumatic. Um, there's some research that shows that just the actual act of intubating can release a cascade of inflammatory markers. So we try really hard not to intubate unless we have to. And the tiny babies, 
it's a lot easier to pull the trigger faster on intubation in them. And so most of the time those, well, we're kind of sitting right on the line. Most of the time we'll go ahead and intubate those babies and give them surfactant, at least in my practice. That's not the case in every practice. And part of that is because I live in Denver and we're at altitude. We tend to be quicker to give that surfactant as opposed to those older babies where we give them a little bit more leeway. Those are the kids where every now and then at two or three days, you're like, oh man, it's just kind of taking a while for the baby to get better. But ultimately those babies do still get better 99% of the time. It just takes a little bit longer and we prevented them from having an intubation. And who knows if the surfactant would have made their hospital stay shorter. We think about things like that. But, you know, ultimately, we want to try to minimize what we're doing that's invasive. And before we talk about surfactant, we're like, we're almost right there. I just want to mention antibiotics. Again, as we would treat mom with antibiotics, we have a sick baby who is in respiratory distress, even if they have RDS. And even it's RDS and pneumonia can actually look really similar on a chest x-ray. We don't have great criteria for neonatal pneumonia. And so we're going to treat this baby as if they have an infection, if they're hanging out with us in the NICU, needing oxygen and needing pressure. That's just, and we'll follow blood cultures and we'll try to minimize the amount of antibiotics that we give. But that's just a reality of treatment because we we take infections so seriously in our newborn babies, no matter the gestational age. Right. And I think one of the things that plays into antibiotics is why was the baby born early? One of the big reasons moms go into preterm labor is infection. And so we're always going to cover those babies with antibiotics until we're 100% sure that the baby doesn't have an infection because the baby can't tell us. We're always thinking about infection and we're always very thoughtful. I would say any neonatologist that you talk to is very, very thoughtful about infection and how they're treating it and for how long they're treating it. And that's just something that we always, though, have to be very on top of and be aggressive about for babies who are sick. I think we are ready to talk about surfactant because that is the big treatment. Uh, top five. Yeah, the, the, it's in the top five. Uh, how did neonatology get changed for the better? Surfactant is in there. So, okay, we're going to talk about surfactant. And we're, we've kind of hinted around at it a little bit, but we're actually going to really dive in and talk about what it is, what types there are, and the current ways that we can give it to babies. So I will hand it over to you to start off. So what it is, I mean, we talked about it being like soap, like a fatty kind of substance. And and so what that's called is it's it's essentially a phospholipid and it has some proteins that hold it together as well. Um, And so we can also do measurements where we kind of can maybe estimate how lung function might be by looking at some of these phospholipids and other things. So that's something you can even do. But I I typically, I don't see it done really um, prenatally for a lot of moms um, where fluid is taken when we, and we look at that. But uh, essentially too, because I work at an institution at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia where we see a lot of rarer things. Um, So sometimes very rarely there might be dysfunctions in the proteins that kind of hold together the surfactant. That we have a, a really hard time treating for babies. But generally, again, the reason why these babies are in respiratory distress is they just don't have enough surfactant. So when we can give it, we can help open up the lung and make it function better. And there are different types of surfactant. There's um, animal-based surfactants and then there's kind of synthetic surfactants that are made in a laboratory Um, and kind of depending on which one you use will also depend on how many doses you might give and the timing of those doses Um, so you know the 
animal-based ones are the older ones that used to be higher volumes that we would use um, with potentially uh, less doses actually because of higher volumes they've shown. Um, but then the synthetic ones tend to be lower volume, which we think actually might be helpful as well. So I don't know what you're doing, Anna, in your practice, um, kind of which surfactants you're thinking about yeah. using. So, so we still use... Um the animal-based product. And we use CuroSurf, which is which is one of those. It's not the very first surfactant. Um, and where I trained, we use Cervanta, which is the very first surfactant the very first, that yeah. was that was made, which is the the highest volume. And there's there's benefits to all of them. And different people will talk about the different benefits of them, but ultimately they all are phospholipid and protein. They all are gonna help expand the lung. For some babies, some units base their decision on, well, I can give this one eight hours after the first dose, and I know I want to try to get two doses on board before I pull the breathing tube out, so I am partial to using the one that has the shortest dosing interval. Other places have patient populations where there are real issues with giving pork products. Um, either in the Muslim or the Jewish communities. Some families will have a real issue with the fact that these came from animal. And so in units where you're taking care of higher patient populations or higher volume patient populations where families are actively looking for the non-animal-based products, they're going to be more likely to have the synthetic product. Most units have one or two surfactants that they routinely use. And they don't stock every single one. So, I mean, that's just a lay of the landscape for different types of surfactants. The delivery of them is actually really interesting as well. So the very classic mode of delivery is, you remember I said when I put in a breathing tube, I give surfactant, is to give it through a breathing tube because you want to give it directly into the lung. And I think we've gotten really creative as a profession about thinking about different ways to get it into the lung that maybe won't require that you stick a breathing tube in. Because as Anna was talking about before, when you stick a breathing tube in, it's not a benign procedure. It's a procedure we do a lot and that neonatologists are very comfortable with. But if we cannot stick something into your trachea, we try not to. Um, That said, putting in a breathing tube in a small baby might be something they need just to help them keep up with the work of breathing as well. Um, And we can effectively manage pressure and do good pressure or volume control with our ventilator for some babies that really need that extra time and support to recover on a ventilator. So I still think that putting in an endotracheal tube is a very good tool to deliver surfactant and also to support your baby um, if that that's what the baby needs. And a lot of times when a baby's in, a, in respiratory stress, they might need that break. They might need that tube. Um, and so we always will place the tube. We'll make sure, ensure that it's in a good position and we'll deliver the surfactant. And we try to deliver it evenly to both lungs if we can. I think the other thing is there's People call it different things. So one is called insure, which is intubate, surfactant, extubate to CPAP, or in and out surf. So where you intubate, you give the surfactant, and you immediately pull the breathing tube out. I think that that in and out surf is really good for babies who you think only need one dose of surfactant. Mm -hmm. They tend to be the older babies. And by older, I mean over 26 weeks, right? Whereas the in and out surf is much less effective and much less likely to really work as well for the really tiny 23, 24, 22 week babies. 
simply because they don't have the muscle mass to generate the respiratory drive constantly. Yeah, and 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 as you said earlier too, it could be weight based too. So you might have a really small 27, 28 weaker that you might still leave the tube in just because you're worried about you know, how they're going to breathe and the mechanics of them breathing. Um, and what we're kind of, so the in and out is something that we do. Um, so we use Insure. Uh, there's also these other methods that people are trialing where you don't even place the endotracheal tube. You just place a much smaller catheter or a much smaller tube and you deliver the surfactant into that much smaller tube, hoping that by placing that there'll be less trauma and knowing this would be a case too where you know you don't need a breathing tube. And so you're just trying to get that catheter in to get the medication in and then you're going to take it out right away because it's not it's this catheter is not something you can hook a ventilator up to um so you're going to get it out right away after you've delivered surfactant and what i think is really cool too is they're also trying to nebulize surfactant like you would albuterol or some other respiratory treatment to see if hey can you just give it in a mask or with a nasal mask or something where you you don't even have to stick something into the airway but i have not we don't do that yet at my institution i don't know if you've seen that done well, so interestingly, that is actually what I did my research on when I was in fellowship. Awesome. Was using one of the aerosolized surfactants, or the company was trying to get aerosolized surfactant going, um, and and then delivering it. And one of the things we were doing is measuring from a functional standpoint, did did things get better, um, and how much of it fought, fell out into the upper airway, meaning the nose, the mouth, the throat, sitting on the tongue and in the cheeks. Because the problem with aerosolizing surfactant is that surfactant is a lipid and lipid is big and aeros things that aerosolize really sticky. Yeah. And it's sticky and things that aerosolize really well are tiny and slippery and just kind of bypass your mouth and your throat and make it down into those bigger airways and the particular problem with surfactant is how do we get it all the way down into the lungs and what dose do you have to give to get enough down into the lungs when you know a lot of it is getting stuck in the mouth and not making it all the way down there so I think, I mean, I think that is one thing. And we didn't, I didn't even get into, you can have different types of masks that you might try to deliver it through. So we have something called an LMA, which we stick into the mouth that we think, you know, will sit right above the tree. So, so I think that this is going to be a hot topic for how we deliver the surfactant. Because again, giving that surfactant is so important if you think that that's the issue, right? Yes. Um, but, but anything we do has risks, Right. So and and we've talked about how we try to think about really hard about giving the surfactant. And I gave you that story where we kind of waited on that 35 weeker who got better. I have I have given surfactant to very small premature babies. Um, and because it changes the compliance of their lungs so much. And I wanted to mention this about RDS. If you in, in respiratory distress syndrome, these lungs are they're, quote, collapsed and they're stiff. And and they're and so when you give surfactant, you're kind of opening them up, and it's like ah, like the oxygen's going to get better. And you can also um, have something called a pneumothorax, which is what I had in my patient, where air actually escapes the lung, gets trapped between the chest wall and the lung itself, and pushes the lung down. And so initially, we saw a good response in this baby to giving medication, but then um, the baby, what we say, blew a pneumo which is something we always worry about. So I always, when I give surfactant, I am standing at the bedside. 
I am watching the ventilator if the baby's intubated. I'm dialing down on my pressures. I'm really trying to avoid this complication. But I had one baby where this baby got the air trapped in the chest. We had to put in chest tubes. It was a 23-weeker. We put in three chest tubes, which, Anna, you can sympathize. Is That's a lot of chest tubes in one baby. A lot of chest tubes. And, and the baby did survive and is actually doing really well, which is like the miracle of premature babies. Um, But in that moment, we were having very serious conversations with that mom about how sick these lungs were. Because again, this therapy that we gave had this side effect, which sometimes we can't prevent because the lung is so sick. So even when you're standing there and you're trying to deliver the surfactant efficiently and you're watching your pressures, you're talking about a baby who's got lungs that are underdeveloped that are sick that is, I think, that pneumothorax, that is the type of lung collapse that parents think of when we say that your lung collapsed. The whole lung just really gets compressed down because of the air that's sitting between the chest wall and the lung. So some units are using late-dose rescue surfactant for small babies that really stay on the ventilator through the first week of life and giving a later dose of surfactant kind of around day five to day seven. Um, And anecdotally, I have used that on occasion for my smaller, really sick babies who are stuck on higher oxygen, so 40%, 50%, might be on a high-frequency ventilator. And so if they're stuck on the ventilator and on higher oxygen, there is a, a select group of babies that we are considering giving those late doses of surfactant to um kind of as a surfactant slump right so we give we give the surfactant in the first couple days of life we really are then relying on those um pneumocytes to start to produce the surfactant and for some for most babies that happens babies are producing their own surfactant by day 4 or or whatever but in a select population giving a later dose of surfactant may be beneficial to bridge them until they're really generating their own surfactant. Is that something that you guys are doing yet or no? No, that's not something we're doing. We're getting really creative about the administration of the surfactant, but we're not yet giving that later dose. We're still kind of in that, if you don't give it to twenty in 24 to 48 hours, then you've sort of missed the window. Missed your um, window. Okay. Yeah. So, but But that's not to say, you know, that we wouldn't, start trying to do that, especially if studies start to show that it's going to have an effect. Um, but and, and that's part of the challenge of what we do as neonatologists is it's really hard to study these things um, and to kind of know the dosing, the timing. Um, and so that's why clinical practice can vary slightly depending on where you are. Um, it kind of depends on if there's a study going on or, you know, what the comfort level of providers there is where they've studied before. Um, so it's a really interesting question, but no, we haven't started doing that yet. That's the short answer after the long answer. Yeah, no, it's good. You know, as to your point about the studies, you know, when, if you think about how they study adult medicine, they get 10,000, 100,000 adults who have high blood pressure or high cholesterol and they try a medication or they try an intervention. And with babies, we're lucky to get 20 babies. And so it's, and and every baby is different, right? That's why one twin might need to be intubated and another twin might not. They're the same age, they're the same gestation, but every baby is a little bit different. And so when you're talking about such small numbers, you just don't have the power behind the study to say, this is absolutely what you should be doing in order to make this baby better. 
the data is not there for a lot of things. There is some small data. Surfactant is good. Yes, period. Surfactant's great. There's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. The studies show that surfactant is great. So there are a few things where we have good data. But even within that surfactant data, there still are now more questions that have to be answered. Um, and we're still looking for more answers. And they're just hard to come by. And they take a long time because our numbers are so small. But I would, rec- you know, if you're a parent or you're a provider who's learning in the NICU, you know, ask about why decisions are being made, ask to see the x-ray, ask to kind of get a sense of um, what the clinical decision-making is, because there's usually a well-thought-out reason for why an approach is being used. And and um, to Anna's point earlier, it's, it, you know, it's about the individual baby. It's about, you know, what do I think is going to help this baby? And what are the things that I'm thinking about for this particular baby um, because, you know, this podcast is only giving you a glimpse into respiratory distress syndrome, but when you're actually in the NICU and you're taking care of this baby, um, they're going to do things <laughs> that maybe we haven't talked about. <laughs> um, but we just want you to kind of become comfortable with some of the terms and, and what we look for when we look at respiratory distress syndrome yeah. specifically. We're always taking our cues from the babies and using the medical data that we have, the information we have, the tools that we have to really tailor it to your baby and what direction your baby's going. Because there's not two babies alike on this whole planet. And it's an exciting time in the NICU. That's why things change so fast. And that's why we're calling you to say we're going to debate for surfactant now. Yeah. Because baby has shown us now that this is the time they need it. So, you know, but... But these decisions are not made lightheartedly. These decisions are made trying to do the best for your baby. Um, and I think I can say that for all neonatologists. That's why we went into this, because we like to be in these high pressure situations where we need to make that decision for that baby and help parents get through it. So I hope that this episode helps for everybody out there listening. I really appreciate you coming on. I'm looking forward to more of these educational episodes families and nurses and nurse practitioners and whoever else is listening uh, hopefully this is helpful to you if you have ideas about what you really want to hear about from an educational standpoint you can jump on mighty littles um, either the website or the instagram account and shoot me an email my email is on there well baby dr mamas is my is my little instagram to follow where i'll I'll be plugging kind of the topics that we're talking about here and then uh, the aap podcast is not just for about babies but about all kids but covers i think some nice big topics like voting for example which was a big thing in 2020 in the fall um and, and other things about environmental health and things that affect babies and kids in general so definitely check out pediatrics on call the aap podcast as well but i'm looking forward to our next episode i know we wanted to talk about apnea yep so that'll be the next one coming up we'll be you know now you've learned all about how the lungs are working and then we're going to talk about what happens when your baby decides that they want to take a pause in their breathing and and why that happens and what we do about it again Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining me. And we'll see you again in January. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.